The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever, the show that looks at the intersection of mental health and work, and how we can all do both better. Adam Baru is CEO and founder of the tech company SuiteCentric, a consulting agency that is a NetSuite solution provider But like so many of us, he also has a side hustle. Hustle isn't quite the right word, though, because Adam's mission in that endeavor is really about improving how we work and making space for CEOs to be more vulnerable. Adam is reframing the stereotype of what he calls a CEO-type guy sounds like. And you'll love hearing about his journey from park ranger to wedding photographer to now founder and CEO and also the imposter syndrome that accompanied him for a long time. On his podcast called The Change, he talks with servant leaders, people looking to normalize mental health conversations. He started this work in part because he finally learned to face a pretty serious past childhood trauma, something he'd ignored for much of his life. We'll talk about that, so a quick warning for those listening that this episode does briefly include mention of child sexual abuse. I was honored to speak with Adam as he shared his personal and professional story, and I started by asking him if he had always wanted to be a CEO. No, no, that's a good question. So my degree in college is in environmental studies, and I wanted to be a park ranger. In fact, I I worked for the National Park Service when I was working on my master's degree. And so that was kind of the track that, you know, I I saw for myself. But what happened was I ended up, you know, having, you know, now my oldest daughter, who's almost 23. And, you know, I had some computer skills from my job with the Park Service and kind of leveraged that to, you know, now that I had a kid, I had to get a real job, right? (laughs) So that's how I started in tech. And, you know, for the what now 23 or so years I've been doing that. I've also done other things. I took a segue for about 10 years where I had a wedding photography business. And Hmm. of the 10, I stepped away from consulting for two and a half years where I just did wedding photography and super fun. I got to, you know, just be a part of many amazing weddings, working with many amazing couples, got to travel, you know, all over the country, international. But, uh, Pretty hard to pay the bills, you know, in Mm. that line of work. I would imagine that being a wedding photographer requires you to have a lot of empathy. You totally do. Yeah. Because especially the style of wedding photography that spoke to me, that Mm -hmm. like kind of tapped into what I wanted to achieve was, you know, I I took a class. uh, Now I'm forgetting the guy's name, but he was one of the photographers that I followed quite heavily back then. But he had kind of created the style called the Beloved Collective. And it was very much built around empathy, like using, you know, games and exercises that I I could use with my couples to get them to open up and be themselves, 
because my style was purely documentary. Mm. I looked at my role as a wedding photographer to just have my couples be themselves around me. And that requires, you know, kind of going to emotional places with them. And so we would do these exercises and I'd kind of break down those walls and then just naturally capture them being themselves. And, you know, when I met my current wife, she was also a photographer. And so we did this work together. So the beloved collective, like these series of games that I'm talking about, there's different levels. Like level one is just kind of very light, kind of funny type of little games that we would play and, you know, get the couples laughing. And then we would, depending on how open the couples were to this, we'd go into level two, which is a little bit deeper. And then level three, like, you know, pretty emotional. I mean, we'd ask questions that would that would be pretty emotionally driven and sometimes the couples would cry and I would be crying and my wife would be crying and we're all <laughs> there crying but it's like the you know true emotion and that true love that these couples had for each other was really you know what we were trying to capture on film oh my gosh that's amazing you know I it's funny as you say that I remember on my wedding day getting photos taken and I can see those photos now my face is so tight not because mm. I wasn't happy to be married I think the stress of having to present for the camera and be present this perfect life for everyone mm -hmm. for one day. Oh God, I remember my face aching. Yeah, no, I, I totally get that. And because it's not just, you know, you trying to present mm -hmm. in front of a camera, but you know, you're also worried about how's my family doing? How are oh, my guests doing? God. Is everybody getting along? Is, is everything going well with my vendors and, right. and all that stuff? It's a stressful day, you know? And uh, as much as, you know, we could inject fun into it, that's what we were about. So it was it was fun to do. I really liked doing it, like I said, but you know, in the end, I had to step away from it and get back into NetSuite Consulting mm -hmm. because, you know, I, I mean, I'll share with you, it, it kind of financially ruined me. I mean, it's really hard to make it in the wedding photography business when, you know, expenses are really high, it's really hard, especially here in the San Diego area, there's so much competition mm -hmm. that in order to make it work financially, you'd have to charge something that people weren't willing to pay because they can just go to somebody else that, that was charging less. So you had this business that you loved, but you realized financially it was draining you. When my wife and I were actually planning our wedding in Italy, this is now I think about nine months before our wedding, we actually went to Italy to just kind of check out this villa that we booked and, you know, ask questions about, you know, where do we have the ceremony and this and that and vendors to hire. And so we went out there that was like the peak of my just financial worries and just being in, in not a great financial place. And I remember there was a night in particular, we were in Bologna. Mm. We ended up having to book this really expensive hotel because we just kind of went to Bologna without really much planning. We just hopped on the train and went up there and we got there and everything was booked. There was some event happening in town and we couldn't get a room anywhere except for this super expensive hotel. <laughs> So I did not sleep a wink that night because like everything hit me. Everything, you know, what am I doing? Is this what I want to do when financially it's making me so stressed out all the time? And it was that night, having not slept at all, that I decided, you know, I I, I can't do it anymore. I, I can't go forward with this, mm. even though I love it so much. It It can't be my future because it's not setting me up for my future. How soon after that realization did you start your consulting firm? Well, what happened was I, you know, as soon as we got back to the States, 
I kind of put my resume out there to, mm. you know, to kind of re-engage in the NetSuite consulting space and ended up working for a NetSuite partner company, I think for about two years and then got hired on to a customer I did a project for. You stayed with them for a couple of years and then out of that formed SuiteCentric. Mm. And it's been, you know, I, I really enjoy doing what I do, mm-hmm. but it's an absolute roller coaster ride and it's the the emotional roller coaster journey, you know, is pretty profound. You know, I'm sure a lot of people kind of have the stereotype of a CEO that they're these strong, you know, impenetrable people that, you know, can just kind of withstand these ups and downs. <laughs> but it's it's, you know, in addition to parenting, it's it's the most <laughs> challenging thing I've ever done in my life. What do you think it is in your particular personality and character that makes being a CEO feel really challenging? What's the aspect of being a CEO that pierces your heart very deeply? It's a good question. I have to think that everybody in a position like mine deals with these ups and downs. And it's just how we respond to the ups and downs Mm -hmm. personally that color that journey, you know, that kind of paint that story. But for me, you know, like I mentioned, I, I never really, I don't come from business school. I never really had any aspirations to be a CEO, but I've been doing this NetSuite consulting thing for about 16 years now. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I feel like my skill set is super strong. I'm very confident doing what I'm doing. Mm. And I kind of went down this journey of after getting laid off for this company that I was working for, you know, looking at what my next steps could be. And it felt like the right time to launch my own business. Now, in the early part of our journey here, we're just, at that time, we were just professional services. So mm-hmm. that in and of itself is going to be a roller coaster ride. Oh, because yes. when you have a lot of projects that you're working on, you know, the revenues are great and you're riding high, but then those projects wrap up. And unless you have something else lined up next. You're like, oh shit. I, I, I think of it like an accordion opening and closing, the bellows on the accordion. Like you stretch with money and staff And then all of a sudden it contracts. Yeah. And you want to make investments. You want to grow, right? So you're making these investments when everything's riding high. And, you know, it took me several years to realize that, you know, I I have to plan for the lows. I was speaking with a former colleague of mine who I think he was quoting a book and I'm not remembering the name of the book, but, you know, in this book, they talk about the trough of sorrows, Mm. which is, you know, in the roller coaster ride, it's, it's those dips, right? And how to get through and basically work through those and learn from those dips, right? Because, I mean, I'll tell you, like, as as painful as the dips have been, that's where there's been the most learning for me, both personally and professionally. Hmm. And you know, now, five and a half years later, we are a full NetSuite solution provider, which means we resell NetSuite software and licenses. And so there's this underlying, you know, revenue that we get mm-hmm. that helps kind of flatline those troughs of sorrows. So, it, you know, it's something that's going to help us go forward. But it took many years and many trials and tribulations to realize that, hey, you know, this isn't working out. We need to kind of augment our business model so that we can kind of flatten out these these curves. That makes sense. So you speak often of being a servant leader. Can you first define what that is and and then explain why and how you consider yourself a servant leader? I really think a servant leader is just you know, a type of leader that recognizes that their role is to enable and empower 
the people that are around them, right? Mm. And I feel like that was kind of always my style, but you know, it took what I, I guess four and a half years of running my company to really recognize that was the role that I wanted to really wrap my arms around. And so, you know, I, I think in what I experienced over the first four and a half years running Sweet Centric was a lot of imposter syndrome. And for people that don't know what that term is, it really means just kind of fronting or trying to feel like you have to be somebody else that you're not. And so where that existed for me is because my background in my career really has been in, in the creative world and also as a software developer and not necessarily a CEO type person, mm-hmm. you know, I, I kind of felt like I was an imposter, right? <laughs> I felt like I had to be and represent something that I, that really wasn't internally aligning with me. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that, you know, I think my whole life I've I've always been like a highly sensitive person. Mm. I felt like a really strong sense of empathy within. But in my career, you know, growing up for the last, you know, 23 years as a Gen Xer in the business world, I felt a lot of pressure and there was a lot of competition doing what I do. Mm. And so I, I personally looked at my empathy and my sensitivity as a weakness, like literally something that I... I had to shove away and hide and and not feel was a strength. But what started before the pandemic, maybe a year before the pandemic, was I started getting, you know, a lot of anxiety attacks. I had never really had them before. And I couldn't necessarily trace where they were coming from. But I think part of it was just living in, in this world, being a CEO, riding all these ups and downs, you know, riding the imposter syndrome, trying to think I had to be somebody I wasn't finally caught up to me. And then the pandemic really, you know, kind of turbocharged all of that and ultimately led to, you know, really severe anxiety attacks, claustrophobia. I couldn't really, you know, there was one experience I had. I went to a customer's headquarters to have a meeting one day with just just one person. And he set up the meeting in this, you know, very large conference room they had. It was like an interior conference room though. There was no windows. And I remember sitting in, in the meeting with him, just one-on-one, and all of a sudden, you know, the panic attacks set in, the claustrophobia. I had to like excuse myself out of the room, kind of make excuses to... What did you, know, you say? I mean, I just said I wasn't feeling well. Yeah. Can they tr- can he have the door open, turn on the air conditioning, that sort of thing. And I was able to, you know, kind of calm myself down. But then what happened was with the pandemic... I really took a lot on, you you know, your initial question was around being a servant leader. So when the pandemic hit, you know, I felt a really critical responsibility to my team more than ever. Mm. I just felt I had to do everything possible to ensure that I wouldn't have to lay anybody off. I didn't want people's, you know, my team members' livelihoods to be at stake based on me making my own mistakes. And so we had this project that came along and I put myself in the position of being the lead developer, lead project manager, lead kind of everything, just to ensure that that project would be highly successful. And I was working about 70 to 80 hours a week. Oh my God. My, my youngest, who is now almost three. So at the time he was about six months old, he's getting up five or so times <laughs> a night. So I was already working late at night. So I, I said to my wife, like, you know, you stay asleep. I'll wake up when he wakes up and get him back down. And 
So in addition to the 70, 80 hour work weeks, I was sleeping about three hours a night disjointed and the panic attacks were just, I mean, several per day, every day. (gasps) Oh my God. It's the worst thing I've personally ever, you know, gone through because I couldn't see the end. I couldn't see how I was going to work myself out of it. Finally, what happened was I had the great luck and fortune to come across my executive coach, Kristen Taylor, mm-hmm. who just, you know, I, I was marketed to on LinkedIn and <laughs> decided to just make an effort to do something about my own mental health. And so I hired her as my executive coach and we started working together. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. uh, We'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. I just want to ask, I mean, it sounds like your, your panic anxiety was pretty severe. Did you go to therapy? Did you see a psychiatrist? Did you take meds? No, um, not at wow. that time. But the first thing I did was I started working with Kristen. And it was maybe my second or third session with her. You know, I think she has a background as a therapist, mm-hmm. um, but she was very careful to make sure that she was guiding me in the right direction. But what happened was in that second or third meeting I had with her, I'm divorced. So I I was married for, I don't know, 15 or so years, got divorced. And my two older kids, you know, I shared with Kristen how I was, you know, even to this day, I, I, I feel a very strong level of guilt mm-hmm. for you know, some stuff that my older kids went through and I, it was just a really painful and emotional place to, you know, that I hadn't resolved yet. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, Kristen asked me, she's like, well, do you feel shame or do you feel guilt, you know, towards that? I remember saying to her, I'm like, I, I, I don't really know the difference. Like, can you describe that to me? And wow, she kind of talked about it in the context of like, well, shame is something that belief systems are built around, that identities can be affected by. Versus guilt is, you know, something that you feel terrible about, but it's not really something that is going to, you're going to build a belief system around, you know, about yourself. That was like a Friday that we had that conversation. And I went about the rest of my day, you know, went home later, did everything with my kids and the family, got the kids to sleep. And I remember I was watching a TV show, which kind of wrapped up at around midnight. The house is super quiet. Nobody's awake except for me. 
I turn off the TV and that that conversation re-entered my mind from earlier in the day. Shame, guilt. Is, is there anything I feel shameful about? Huh. And literally, like the parting of the sea or just the way I describe it is like my higher self finally recognizing that I was ready to receive the information I received, which was I was molested at six years old. What happened was my mom had, you know, when she split with my dad, had hired this babysitter, this teenage kid. Mm. And as soon as my mom would leave, this kid would lock me in my mom's walk-in closet, barricade the door, have the light off in there, and then have his friends come over and they'd have a big party doing drugs. I remember seeing, oh you know, eventually when two hours or so later when I'd finally get let out of this closet, you know, being terrified in there. And I remember just like that feeling of, of so much fear and they'd finally let me out and just seeing people totally wasted and passed out, needles, <gasps> um, you know, rubber hoses around people's arms. I mean, as a six-year-old, you know, can you imagine? No, you, you must have just been absolutely scared to death. Super scared to death. And then, you know, I was molested. And, you know, it was literally in that moment, that Friday night when I, you know, the shame and the guilt, all of a sudden, I had never blacked out that memory. I just never spoke about it ever to anybody. Okay, so can I ask you, so you knew as a child that you had been molested. This was a part of your, wasn't a part of your story, but but you hadn't repressed the memory so much that you didn't remember it. Correct. I, I remembered it happened. Yeah. All of my life, I never thought it had any relevance or any like subsequent impact. But, you know, this realization that I had this this Friday night after this conversation with Kristen, and this all happened within like, five minutes after turning off the TV and just thinking about this experience, like, oh my God, I have, you know, from that, I think I blamed myself. Mm. You know, I think that must've been my little six-year-old way of coping was just having agency over it. Yeah. Obviously I wasn't, it wasn't my fault. Did you I tell your victim. mom? Yeah, my parents knew, but you know, unfortunately I just think that, you know, being in the late 1970s, you know, therapy yeah. and, and talking about these sorts of things wasn't really, you know, normal mm -hmm. or thought of as, you know, something that, it, that it was okay, you know? So I, no one ever really dealt with it. It just kind of, it just never got spoken about. I never spoke about it. I never, I had never told my current wife. I had never told my ex-wife. No, I just never spoke about this again. But now when this realization hit me, I was like, this is literally the cause for my negative self-talk, my yeah. hatred that I have for myself, that I had. It's still there a little bit today, but it, you know, it's something I'm working on. And, you know, some drug use and alcoholism and, you know, probably just the way that it, you know, I, I just wasn't dealing with things in my life, you know, probably led to a lot of the reasons why I got divorced, you know? And, and so the realization was just the impact that that experience had on who I was at that moment, you know, at that time a year ago being, you know, 48 years old, 49 years old, just now kind of everything hitting me at once, like the impact of that experience. There's so much, Adam, to unpack and I feel honored that you're sharing your story. It is interesting, there's this through line of divorce and shame you know, in both what you experienced growing up and then it sounds like in some of the feelings that you felt. Yeah. When you knew that what you felt was shame, 
Was that clarifying for you? Yeah. I mean, it, it explained everything to me. Yeah. And it really led me to understand that just under the surface, I think I had always thought that that was my fault, that like I invited it. But it, it really wasn't until this realization where I was like, what, what was I thinking? Mm -hmm. Like, I'm a victim. Mm -hmm. There's no chance that as a six-year-old that I invited that in. I didn't know about any of that stuff, you of know? Of course. Like that following week after I had had that realization, you know, I was so just looking forward to the next conversation with Kristen, who was the only person that I still opened up to about this stuff <laughs> to share this. I mean, I hadn't told her about being molested yet, but you know, I just was like, all right, now is my time to open up and start sharing and just looking at and exploring about how this has impacted my life. And uh, so I told Kristen the following Friday and it was just a very, you know, I think emotional call for both of us. And then, you know, we talked about how to kind of open up and, and share this with my wife, mm -hmm. my kids. And so then, you know, the next couple of weeks or so, I, I started opening up to them. And, you know, it felt very freeing. This was like the freest and most confident I had ever felt in my whole life because now I understood, you know, what had been going on that was driving all this kind of like self-loathing and this negative self-talk over the course of my life. And now I had ownership over it. It didn't own me anymore. I, I'm in control. And, you know, there was a lot of work that now I've been doing over the last, you know, or a year and a half since, you know, this kind of all transpired. I'm definitely still a lot of a work in progress, but. Who isn't? Yeah, that's absolutely true. But one thing that I'm fully recognizing now is that I am worthy of taking care of myself and prioritizing myself, like not in a selfish way where it's negatively impacting people around me, but in a positive way where, you know, I recognize fully that in order for me to be the best leader and boss and father and husband, like I am worthy of enjoying my life, mm -hmm. enjoying myself, you know, doing the things that I want to do. And by doing so, it enables me to be a better boss, to be a better leader, be a better father and husband. A lot of the work on trauma from a psychological perspective has shown that trauma victims who have PTSD and who perhaps reflexively act out their trauma and react to it without doing what you did, which is integrating the fact that trauma happened to them, that they are a trauma victim, and that is part of their story. It's part of their self mm -hmm. and their own personal narrative. That that's really important, that the process of understanding your trauma and integrating it into your story is what's really, really important in the healing. And what's interesting to me is you are integrating it into your leadership and your role as a CEO, which is not something that we hear very often. Well, I felt an obligation towards it. Again, I think just with my, my heart was directed to, you know, remember I spoke about that imposter syndrome. Yeah. Well, what all these kind of, you know, realizations that I had made and my work with Kristen, what that led to for me in understanding about myself is that my sensitivity 
and my, you know, kind of heightened empathy is actually my superpower. <laughs> I mean, I, like I mentioned before, I thought it was like a fatal flaw in my character, right? Something that I had hidden for so many years, but it's when the imposter syndrome went away is realizing, you know what, this is who I am. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a need, especially around the you know pandemic or early post pandemic, there, there's a need for more empathy in the world, for more servant leaders that are trying to destigmatize mental health issues, right? And, and have that conversation around mental health issues be normal because I think for so many years, especially in business, it was frowned upon, especially this concept of the CEO being this impenetrable, you know, invulnerable person. Well, the CEO could never be a victim. I mean, that's right. the framing that is so radical to me is, <laughs> and, I, and I think really powerful, you know, as someone who's talked to a lot of leaders is you said I wasn't a CEO type guy. Yeah. The way that I look at it now, though, here in the year 2022 is I think to be the most effective leader that I could be is going to mean that I have to model yeah. what, what it means to be a leader. And, and that means to be vulnerable and to open up and to share my story. You know, that's why I'm speaking with you today. You know, we talk at my company, like once I started to have all these realizations and recognize the type of leader that, and CEO that I wanted to be and kind of put that uh, imposter aside, you know, I started now investing in my team a lot more. So huh. I had Kristen, you know, as my executive coach come in and give, you know, four one hour sessions to my whole company on mindfulness and breathing exercises and, uh, and work life balance and harmony, whatever you want to call it. You know, we invested in the Calm app. And so everybody at my company has the Calm app mm -hmm. so they can, you know, we talk a lot about meditation, which is also something that now I provide to my company weekly. There's a corporate meditation session, which <laughs> I even kind of like had to remind my team last week, like, hey, when you do the, the meditation sessions, if you're going to join that, like we're paying for that. Like, we'll like make sure you put in your time as, you know, internal time because we're going <laughs> to we're not only going to provide the meditation for you, but we're going to pay you for the time to be a part of it. So, you know, I think it's important that leaders, you know, especially in this day and age, I think we just deal with so much now, Yeah. you know, especially around the pandemic and the, the racial divide and political divide and so many divisions that we experience today. It's, it's important that we highlight and find those opportunities where we do come together and, and support each other. I think meditation at work and the apps are great. But if the overall culture and the leadership doesn't support mentally healthy practice all around, they're just a nice to have. So I'm curious also how your evolution and also your realization that your empathy is part of who you are as a good leader, like how has that cascaded down to how you run meetings or how the company culture runs and is structured, has it? Yeah, it definitely has. So, you know, something that has been very, you know, rife in the consulting industry, in tech especially, is working long hours. Oh, I mean, yeah. We're a professional services organization, so we bill by the hour, right? And so, you know, in my own career, I'm just used to working 60, 70, 80 hours a week. I'm used to sacrificing vacation time, having to work on holidays, nights, weekends, mm -hmm. all this stuff. And, you know, I thought growing up in my career, I mean, that was all normal. That was all normal and expected yep. in the consulting tech industry, right? And so I didn't want, you know, my company to 
follow those same principles at the expense of my team members burning out. I've seen people burn out here where we have customers that, you know, kind of drive my team members like, hey, you know, we need this done. Like, are you working over the weekend? And so now I really, you know, when I get those sorts of statements from my team members, like, hey, so-and-so customers is kind of, you know, they're really on me yeah. at nights, weekends, they're texting me and slacking me. And so we we put it out there to our customers like, hey, you know, our, our team works a standard 40-hour work week and that's really it. And so I really emphasize to my team members, we only expect you guys to work, you know, whatever, nine to five or whatever. If you want to work more, that's up to you, but we really advocate to, to not and to enjoy your life. I mean, some people like to just do the work. It feels good to them. So I'm not going to, yeah. you know, get in the way of that, but you know, that's, that's one of the things. Another thing is I think just how we deal with really stressful and negative, you know, things that happen in our day to day. I'm really an advocate for, you know what, let's kind of switch the conversation and, and let's find the positive in it mm -hmm. to try to, you know, coach my team to, to not be so reactive. And so, you know, this is, I think, you know, just various examples of where, you know, we're trying to just make everybody's experience here, you know, maintainable, supportable for them, where they know really that we have their backs. Mm. Last question. If someone's listening and they think of this servant leadership idea is really cool, how do you start? You have to look within first as a, as a leader and you have to really gain a heightened sense of self-awareness. Mm. That's where it started for me. I really don't think I had the self-awareness that I that I have today. And so, you know, by having the sense of self-awareness, it really gives me the ability to reflect on decisions that I'm making, how I'm acting, how I'm presenting. Like, am I doing things that are supportive of others and supportive of myself? Or is this decision I'm about to make, is it going to run counter to that? So... Mm. You know, for, for business leaders that want to go down this path, look within, journal, identify what's important to you, both personally and professionally, you know, explore if there's negative self-talk there, try to explore where that comes from and, and address it, bring it out to the open, you know, be vulnerable and, you know, share your story and model why to your team members. And then... The other thing too is just really trying to tap into your team members, like mm. do more check-ins, mm -hmm. do more one-on-ones. Don't just talk about the work, ask how they're doing. Say, hey, on a scale of one to 10, how are you doing today? <laughs> you know, and when you ask it that way, it kind of incites a, a little bit more of a deeper response. I like that. Yeah, that's a good framing. Yeah. Well, Adam, I, I really want to thank you so much to honor your leadership and thanks for, thanks for the interview. Yeah, thanks so much for having me today, Maura. It's just been a, a pleasure to, to talk about my journey and, and hopefully, you know, it's going to inspire other business leaders to explore how they can become servant leaders because we need it today. Mm -hmm. we, oh my God, we do. <laughs> yeah, but, but, you know, in all aspects of our lives, they're just, we need more empathy. Mm -hmm. We need to get into each other's shoes and really understand each other a little bit better. I think it's, it's going to pave the way for a lot more unity. So yeah, again, thank you for having me today. That's it for today. Our show is produced and edited by Mary Dew. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Krinko. 
Many thanks to the great LinkedIn Presents family and to all of our guests for sharing their stories. If you love the show, tell your friends or leave us a review. You can always tweet me at Mora AM or find me on LinkedIn where you can follow me, leave me a message, or subscribe to my newsletter for more from the Anxious Achiever world. Thanks for listening.